Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Last Wednesday, I had finished taping our video sermon for the week. I was sitting in a meeting in, in, at our church and got a text message from a friend that said, I can't believe what's happening at the Capitol. And I hadn't been following it that day because I was working the whole morning. And so I swiped open my news app and started to watch in, in horror and shock like you may have done as well. You know, but I wasn't shocked. <laughs> I, I wasn't all that surprised. I mean, if you've been following the politics in the U.S. over the last few months and years even, this isn't a huge surprise. I, I mean, the tension in our country is to a boiling point, And I think in some ways we just saw the tip of the iceberg, an anecdote to the angst that is just beneath the surface for so many people in our nation. It seems to me like the lines have been drawn. Republican, Democrat, progressive, conservative. We have the good guys and the bad guys and the good guys are the guys that agree with us and the bad guys are the guys that disagree with us. And I think so many have embraced this either or proposition that there's one of these two ways to move forward. And I just want to say as a follower of Jesus, I reject that notion. See, I, I, as a follower of Christ, I've wrestled with how do we engage this and, and what do we say about it? it? It broke my heart to see people holding crosses and claiming to believe in the scriptures while inciting a riot. Now, now whether that happens in Portland or on Capitol Hill, it's wrong either way. As a follower of Jesus, I had to step back and ask myself, gosh, what does it look like to be for the kingdom of God in a situation like this? You know, when the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, he told them that they are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But that didn't mean that they were no longer a part of the empire of Rome. I mean, they had to figure out how to live with their feet in two different worlds at the exact same time. They had to figure out how to remain true to their true king, Jesus of Nazareth, while they served as a prophetic voice in the Roman Empire. See, I'd planned this series on Nehemiah before any of these things happened, and I thought, do I need to take a step back from Nehemiah and speak to the cultural moment that we find ourselves in, this unique moment as we see a transition in the presidency coming and all of this angst that's coming to the surface of our lives and our nation. But as I started to study Nehemiah chapter 5, I thought, wow, this really speaks beautifully to the moment that we find ourselves in. If you've been asking your question, yourself the question over the last week or few weeks or months like I have, questions like, how can we move forward in a healthy way? Questions like, what should our response be in our current political climate? 
Questions like, what does it look like to live faithfully in such a time as this? Then I believe that the message that we're going to talk about over the next few minutes is for you. And I'm convinced that Nehemiah wants to show us a way forward. And it's not going to be a few simple steps to a better life. And it's not going to be uh, five steps to a healthier nation. It's actually, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost you and it's going to cost me. And the the challenge for us is, and I just want to put it on the table because I think it's so important for us today. The challenge in front of us today is that when things seem uncertain, we look for stability. We fight for stability. We cling for it. We long for it because we want to take care of our family, our friends, people that matter to us. And we feel like if we give any ground, it's going to be ground that's lost forever and it's going to come back and cost us dearly. I mean, look at the way that people post-Great Depression hoarded things. They stored things because they were so used to living in a moment of scarcity that it was hard for them to look outside of themselves. It's actually, sociologists would say that that's really when hoarding started is post-Great Depression. And I feel like we're in a hoarding moment, a moment where we want to keep our, all of our ground, but we don't want to give an inch. We want to keep all of our stuff because we're unsure of what the future looks like. And it's into that attitude and ethos that the scriptures are going to speak to us today. See, when we sense scarcity, we respond by trying to hoard our stuff. We, we want to we power up. We want to make a way for ourselves and for the people that we care about. I think it's what President Trump was saying in his speech right before uh, Capitol Hill was stormed. He said, you'll never take back our country in weakness. And yet, and yet, as a follower of Jesus, I'm required to take a step back and go, is that what the scriptures teach? Actually, it's not. It's not. The Apostle Paul would say, uh, hearing the words of Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, it's in your weakness that you're strong. In addition, the Apostle Paul would write to the church at Corinth, and he would say that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. As followers of Jesus, friends, we are called to a different way. I'd even say it this strongly. We're called to a better way. A better way. But it doesn't mean that we're called to roll over. And it doesn't mean we're called to throw our hands up in the air and go, well, oh well. In fact, Jesus tells us how to fight. Listen to what he says. In Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 30, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. To the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Whew. Those are hard words from Jesus. But those are our marching orders, friends. We are called to be a prophetic voice of wholeness for all people, regardless of whether or not they agree with us. We're called to live generous lives, self-giving and 
others benefiting. And what we're going to see today, and I'd invite you to write this down, is that generosity is a pathway to personal wholeness and communal flourishing. Generosity, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. Give, give, give. Generosity is a pathway to personal wholeness and communal flourishing. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that it's Christians living generously that can help turn the tide of our nation. It's cruciform, generous love that is the way of the Lamb and the way of his followers. Now, when most people think about generosity, they think of money. (laughs) And certainly, that's a part of it. But as we're going to see over the next few minutes together, it's not the whole story. And Nehemiah wants to teach us how to rebuild our life by like a clam trying to pull us open to help us rebuild our generosity. And I believe with all of my heart, it's needed more than ever in such a time as this. See, as we're going to see, generosity isn't just about our money. It's about our attitude and our ears. It's about our resources, our table, and it's about our trust. And Nehemiah is going to be a great guide to help draw these things to the surface, to pry our hearts open a little bit, to have a different perspective on the world around us and the situation we find ourselves in today. Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Here's how it reads. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were some who said, With our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as of the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children, yet We're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So it turns out life isn't exactly bliss back in Jerusalem. That Nehemiah not only has to rebuild the wall, he also has to rebuild the political, social, and economic infrastructure of this nation. And as we've seen in this first few verses, there's a few different issues that are converging to create just a storm of trouble. First, there's many large families and they didn't have enough money to feed all the mouths that were around the table. And so they were in this difficult economic position because of the size of their families. They, ha- they couldn't make a fair living wage. And the second issue was that the king's tax was being imposed on them and it made it even more difficult. It was sort of just one thing after another for these families. My guess is there's some of you in our current state that can relate to that. You're going, yeah, I I get that. It's difficult to keep up with all these things that are being imposed on us. So what did the people do? Well, the first thing that they did is they mortgaged their fields which meant that they didn't make as much profit off of the things that they grew and were able to sell. And then the second thing that they had to do was sell their kids into slavery to their own countrymen, to their own countrymen. I mean, can you imagine being in that kind of a situation? We have a word for this. 
The word is injustice, injustice. One way to look at injustice is, is that when the poor, or when the rich and the powerful use their power to take advantage of the poor and vulnerable. And unfortunately, this is the way many nations are set up to benefit the powerful at the expense of the vulnerable. But the people of God were called to be different. From the very beginning, they were called to be a people of love and justice. That they were called to be a people that gave dignity and respect to people at all phases along the economic and social pipeline. That they were called to be people who valued everybody regardless of what they contributed. It was something unheard of in the ancient world. I think they might have echoed Martin Luther King's sentiment in his letters from Birmingham jail when he wrote this, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And I think it's because of this conviction, Nehemiah steps into the chaos. He does so not because it's going to benefit him. See, as a leader, he could have taken advantage of the system that was being perpetuated. He was one of the people on top. But instead, he leads generously towards something better. Listen to what he writes in verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Well, what's the first thing that Nehemiah does? He, he listens. He says, I, I'm, I hear the words of the people that are pouring their hearts out. He, I think Nehemiah would say, listen, I've sat across the table from a dad who had to sell his daughter into slavery. And it just turns me with compassion. I think this is the first step towards rebuilding our generosity. We have to listen openly. Would you write that down? Listen openly. See, generosity isn't just about what I give. It's also about how I listen. And what I've found is that it's easier to draw conclusions about issues and about groups of people than it is to actually listen And I think it's when we listen and hear the stories that our hearts start to change. You know, a number of months ago when George Floyd was killed and there was just a rising outcry from our black brothers and sisters across America about the injustices that were happening. One of the things that I did was try to listen and and I started to read books about the plight of some of the people that were just sort of raising their voice. And one of the books that I was recommended was Just Mercy by a man named Brian Stevenson. He runs the Equal Justice Initiative, and the book recounts his work as a lawyer working with black men, primarily, who were wrongfully imprisoned. And my goodness, you guys, I I would read this book and I just get so angry and so frustrated and so sad. I, at times I just had to put it down and just, and just pray. I mean, my eyes were being opened to things that I just didn't have the chance to see. I think if we're going to listen well, one of the ways we can do that is by, is by reading and trying to enter into the stories of those not like us. But the second thing we can do is we can form relationships. You have this opportunity. You can do this probably in your own neighborhood. Relationships with people that aren't like you, maybe with immigrants who have come here and left circumstances that would be 
hard for us to really wrap our hearts and our minds around. Maybe people from a different religion and a different perspective. But I love that Nehemiah begins this journey of generosity with listening. But he doesn't stop there. He gets, he gets angry. He gets upset. And I think that's an appropriate response to injustice. When people can't feed their families, when they can't find enough work to provide, I I think being righteously indignant is a good response to that. It's one of the responses that we see Jesus taking towards injustice is getting upset about it. And, And I think Jesus gets upset about injustice because he loves people, because he cares deeply about people and wants them to flourish, but his anger doesn't stop there, and it doesn't stop there for Nehemiah either. It, it drives them toward action. He he does something about it. He doesn't make a decision about what to do based on what will benefit him, but based on what's best for the whole. And listen to what he does, verse seven. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they be sold to us. They were silent. Couldn't find a word to say. So I said, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Now, just a quick time out. Nehemiah is saying, if you really feared God or worshiped God, you would treat the people around you differently. Verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their homes, and the percentage of money, grain, and wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. I mean, Nehemiah is throwing down the gauntlet with the most powerful leaders in that city in that day. Now, When the scriptures talk about not charging interest, they're not talking about uh, capital uh, purchases. They're actually talking more specifically about taking advantage of the impoverished to make profit off of their helplessness. I mean, listen to the way that Exodus chapter 22 verse 25 says it. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, You should not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. And this is exactly what was happening in Jerusalem. So what does Nehemiah do? First, he listens openly. And secondly, he confronts injustice. He confronts injustice. Nehemiah knows that in order to make true progress, he has to address the issues in a systematic, political, economic, and personal way. And I would argue that Any situation of injustice cannot be approached simplistically. It must be approached multidimensionally and in nuanced and powerful ways. But what Nehemiah does is he takes a risk to say something, to call people to the table, and to speak up for those who didn't have a voice to speak for themselves. This is exactly what the author of Proverbs calls God-fearers too. Here's what he says. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of those who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. This is exactly what Nehemiah 
is doing. He's confronting injustice. And I just want to ask you to think about what's one way that you could do that? What's one way that you could give voice to some of the people or situations, circumstances around you that you don't feel like they have a voice? My friend and advocate, Jeff Brodsky, who runs an organization called Joy International that fights human trafficking around the globe, says this. He said, awareness is good, but awareness without action is apathy. So I'd encourage you, start close to home. Start in North County. Start in Escondido. Start with prayer and just start to ask Jesus what he wants to show you and how he wants to use you to be a generous voice for the voiceless. The more I study Nehemiah, the more respect I have for him and the more I'm challenged by him. See, we're going to see that Nehemiah not only takes a public policy and stands systematically against the injustices that are going on, but he also is going to practice privately what he preaches publicly. He's going to make personal changes because of the convictions that he has. So if you're, if you're sick of leaders saying one thing and then doing a completely different thing, you're going to love Nehemiah's generous approach to the situation going on in Jerusalem. Listen to the way he draws it out. We're going to see three ways that he lives this out in his personal life. Here's the first, starting in verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. See, Nehemiah is saying, once again, he said this in verse 9, but he's saying that my fear of God, my reverence for God, my worship of God impacts the way that I interact with the people all around me. And for Nehemiah, it impacted even his salary. It impacted how much money he took from his people. See, as the governor, as the leader, he was able to tax people as much as he wanted, to line his own pockets with the excess that he didn't have to send back to Persia. And he was able, it says, to take a daily ration of 40 shekels of silver, which he didn't take. I mean, this is almost unheard of, isn't it? Here's what Nehemiah does. The first thing he does is he listens openly, then he confronts injustice, and then he embraces limits. I'd invite you to write that down. He embraces limits. Now, let me be as clear as I can. I believe capitalism is the best economic system ever created. It drives innovation and excellence. It rewards hard work. However, however, it does have downsides. And one of the downsides is that if those in positions of power and influence don't self-impose limits, then the disparity between the rich and the poor will continue to grow further and further. Now, that, that's a problem because one of the indicators of a health and flourishing of a nation 
is the narrowing gap between the rich and the poor. That disparity, as that disparity grows, nations become more and more unhealthy. And you can see this even in our physical health. A study published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology in 2019 found that the higher level of income equality in a nation resulted in the higher rate of cardiovascular-related deaths and hospitalizations. I mean, that's an interesting correlation to draw. And I think that there's a, a challenge because we always assume that more is better. If I can get more, why wouldn't I? One of my favorite singer-songwriters, his name was Rich Mullins. And as he grew in popularity, he grew more and more concerned about his own heart. He started to make more and more money, and he was worried about the way that he was responding to his sort of new wealth. And so here's what he did. He told his accountant, I just want to be paid an average working salary. And then what I want you to do is I want you to give the rest away. But here's the thing. I don't want to know how much I make because it would be too hard to give away if I knew. That, that is taking what Nehemiah's principle to the extreme. I don't know that you and your family want to go about it that way. The principle is, how do we say this is enough for us and then find ways to bless people with the rest of it? It's resisting that urge and that natural human tendency to hoard more for ourselves. Nehemiah models for us what it looks like to push into limits that end up blessing other people. But listen to the next thing that Nehemiah did, verse 16. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. So Nehemiah is serving his fellow countrymen, and it costs him. He's not able to acquire land. He's not able to purchase property. There, there, there are things that he's not able to do because he's serving the common good. And in so many ways, I think Nehemiah is just modeling for us, boots on the ground, what Jesus-style leadership looks like. Would you write this down? It, it means, and this is what generosity looks like too, it means that we serve sacrificially. And see, Nehemiah's behavior and actions as a the governor were guided by principles of service rather than opportunism. See, the higher you get in organizations and social structures, the more opportunities you'll have to do one of two things, either to benefit yourself or to benefit others. But what I found is it's hard to do both of those things. We're often going to have to choose. Will I use my position and my power to benefit myself or will I leverage it for the good of others? And this is part of Jesus's central message to his followers. What do we do with power? What do we do with influence? Whether it comes in the form of a position we have or resources that we have. And listen to what he says in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. He says, and Jesus called them to him, speaking to his disciples, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be called slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to serve, but didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
I mean, notice the way that Jesus is confronting the leaders of his day. They're thinking, we're in charge, therefore people should serve us, therefore we get to dominate people, therefore we get to lord it over them. And he says the same thing that Nehemiah lives out. No, you are in the position you're in, not to lord it over, but to lift others up, not to get, but to give, not to be served, but to serve. And what if we shifted our thinking from what can I get to what can I give? I mean, Nehemiah says, I wasn't even able to buy property because I was so busy serving the common good. I'm reminded of Winston Churchill's axiom that has just sort of grabbed us collectively. I think he said this, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. So here's my question for you. In light of that reality that Nehemiah lives out and that Jesus points to, what would it look like for you to serve the people around you sacrificially? And I mean, think of how countercultural that would be in our current moment, where everybody wants to defend their ground and everybody feels like they need to get theirs and hoard it and keep it. What if you, what if we as a church, as followers of Jesus decided, instead of trying to serve ourselves or our party or our interests, we're gonna serve others. We would live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus. We would follow in Nehemiah's wake and in the path that he laid down serving in Jerusalem. So we've seen Nehemiah listen openly to the angst of the people. He's confronted injustice. He's embraced personal limits. He's served sacrificially. And then listen to the last thing that he does to practice generosity personally. Verse 17. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us, Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. And I love this. Nehemiah is still looking outside of his own life to say, what is best, not for me, but what's best for everyone? So he says, I'm not going to take this food allowance that I'm able to take because I want to benefit my people. He's, but, he, but he also says, I, but I'm not going to stop extending hospitality to the people around me. Did you catch that? At my table, there were 150 men. And I would invite you to write this down. It's one of the ways we practice generosity by extending hospitality. See, when we think about generosity, we often think of our resources and our finances. And to be sure, what we do with our money is a part of being generous people. But being generous also has to do with the openness of our hearts, of our homes, of our table, of our time, and and of our lives. See, there's a reason that Jesus spent so much time eating with people. It was part of his evangelistic strategy, hearing their stories, entering into their lives, and creating space in his life to host the other. Friends, this is part of Nehemiah's strategy, and it's part of the way 
of Jesus. Let me reiterate the challenge for you as we begin to close our time together today. See, our tendency during normal times is heightened during uncertain times, and it is to take and to hoard and to keep our ground and to keep our stuff. We become insular and closed in on ourselves in times of uncertainty. And I want to lift our eyes to that from that today. I want to call you to something different and something better. And I want to say, even prophetically, I believe that our nation right now needs the church to be the church. And part of the distinctives of the church is that we are a generous people. We aren't about just defending our own rights or fighting for our stuff or hoarding our space. We are here for the benefit of our community and for the benefit of our nation and ultimately for the benefit of the world that we might see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in moments of uncertainty, I want to see us become a church that lives with generosity. After all, it is better to give than it is to receive. That's from Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Friends, I love the way that our church community is already doing this in so many ways. The ways that we're coming alongside of refugees in San Diego. Uh, The way that we are partnering with Interfaith to feed the hungry and to help the homeless find homes. I love our work with Safe Families that comes alongside of families to help prevent them from having to go into foster care situations. Our work with orphans through Faces Ministry is just such a powerful declaration of the hope of the gospel and the way that Alternatives Medical Clinic comes alongside young women and young men in really difficult situations in times of need and speaks a word of hope. Gosh, you guys, in so many ways, we are living living out this ethos of generosity that we believe is the pathway to personal wholeness and communal flourishing. But but I think you'd agree with me, the work is not done, especially in our moment right now. I believe that God is inviting the church to rise up and to be the church. So what might that look like for you as an individual? Well, first, can I encourage you to do exactly what Nehemiah did? To listen. Listen to the outcry. Maybe, like me, you read the book Just Mercy, or you could watch the movie. But what are ways you can start to hear the stories of people around you that are different than you, that you might receive a little bit differently than you have in the past? Second, would you ask Jesus to open the eye, your eyes to things going on in our community that break his heart? What are, what are things that he wants you to be passionate about because he's passionate about? And then finally, would you just simply ask the question, Lord, how do you want me to be generous? Maybe you admit, like I have to, maybe you admit, my tendency is to be stingy. My tendency is to hoard and protect my stuff, especially in moments of scarcity. But God, how do you want me to live with generosity? I mean, certainly giving to the church is a good first step, but after that, there are so many ways that you can live this out. Let me give you one idea. If you're one of the people that's getting a stimulus check, but you haven't lost work because of COVID, I want to invite you, even challenge you, find a way to bless somebody else with that. 
find a way to come alongside someone that maybe has lost work and is in a difficult situation and be a blessing to them. That's just one way that you can do that. I'd call you though. Go onto our website, efcc.org, and on the front page, there is a way for you to say to us, help me get involved with some causes that are gospel-centered and for the flourishing of our community. Help me be generous. Fill that form out. We would love to come alongside of you. But let me end by giving you Nehemiah's secret to living a generous life. It's actually in the very last verse of this chapter Here's what he wrote. He said this, Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. He's going, God, remember me. God, see me. God, I believe. And this is what I invite you to write this down. This is Nehemiah's perspective. Our ultimate good is not found in the accumulation of our goods, but in the blessing of our God. Our ultimate good is not found in the accumulation of our goods, but in the blessing of our God. Trust, friends, trust in God. Fear God, just like Nehemiah mentions two times in this text. The secret to living an open-handed life is the conviction that God is the one who blesses. And he blesses so that we might be a blessing to others. Would you pray with me as we close our time together today? And I'd invite you just wherever you're at, would you just, we're going to do a practice, a prayer practice of just opening up our palms to God and saying, God, our hands are open to you. Just pray with me right now. God, our hands are open to you. God, our lives are open to you. Would you fill our hands with the things you want us to have? And then we're going to do our best not to close our fists around that stuff, but to Hold it open to you to use as you would see fit. God, help us listen openly. God, help us work against and confront injustice. God, help us to be the kind of people that embrace limits in our own life that are healthy for us and good for others. God, help us to be the kind of people that serve sacrificially. Our time is not our own, it's yours. How do you want to use it for the glory of your name? And then, Lord, our tables are open. God, help us to be the kind of people that extend hospitality to those around us for the good of the gospel and for the flourishing of our whole community, we pray. And Lord, I pray over my friends in this tense political moment. I have no idea what today holds or what the rest of this week holds. And I certainly don't know what the future holds. But I know that you're holding us. And I know that you're calling us not to sit on our hands and to wait and see what happens, but to be a prophetic voice of generosity and good that will help lead us forward as a nation. Lord, we love you. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray together. And all of God's people said, amen and amen.
Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.